0: Well, what an incredible roller coaster ride the, the year 2016 has already been taking us on. Today I want to teach from the, from the, the, the area, the topic that God has given me, living victoriously in a defeated world. Living victoriously in a defeated world. When we look at our culture, our culture is in a moral free fall. Sort of like that roller coaster. There has been a moral shift in our culture. Number one, the institution of traditional marriage is becoming totally obsolete. People no longer want to see marriage as something sacred. And we see by a five to four vote last summer that the traditional marriage has been overturned. Secondly, we see the boundaries of morality are expanding in our culture. Nothing is sacred anymore. We see that that the line that God has established, the things that was right and righteous or immoral, they're stepping across that line and pushing that line back. And we see our nation as a whole calling right, wrong, and wrong, right. We also see the idea of atheism is being increasingly embraced. The idea that there is no God. And when we dismiss God as Lord or God as God, The the idea of morality now becomes subjective versus objective. Under a subjective moral culture, every person gets to decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong. So there is no longer a moral objectivity, a moral standard, because where there is a God, there is a lawgiver, because God is the giver of the law. And so when we dismiss God and make him no longer living, we pretty much now declare that there is no, there are no moral absolutes anymore. As a nation, we're saying that there are no more moral absolutes. Not only is the institution and traditional marriage being, uh, becoming obsolete or the boundaries of morality be, are expanding and the idea that there is no God, the accuracy of the Bible is being questioned. And it's not so much being questioned by those outside of the arena of the church, but many people within the church themselves and many churches are questioning the truths found in the Bible as if there is another alternative to what the Bible is saying. I was looking at a statistic the other day and we have a curriculum we teach from, uh, by, uh, summit ministry. And they said 50% of all the children who was raised in Christian homes and went to Christian schools, 50% of them will denounce knowing God or Jesus Christ before they graduate out of college. 50%. Wow. If you don't think their culture is very powerful in its influence, we cannot underestimate our enemy. But at the same time, we've got to understand that God is still large and in charge. Amen? So not only there's a... Uh, Marriage, traditional marriage becoming obsolete. The boundaries of morality are expanding. The idea of atheism is being increasingly embraced. The accuracy of the Bible is being questioned. And here is the biggie. Here is the big one. Where it looks like Satan is winning. The divinity of Jesus Christ is increasingly under attack. No longer seeing Jesus Christ as the son of God. And when we dismiss or somehow downplay the divinity of Jesus in our lives, what we're saying is that there is no redemption. There is Man is perfect and perfectible, but he's perfect and perfectible by his own means, that when man sins, it is the fault of the culture, not his own. The Marxist believes in bringing about a change through radical means of killing thousands of people. The secular humanist brings about a change through legislation so slowly over a period of time that it is not even recognizable. The cosmic humanists say that you are God and you should not look to anybody else but you. But in a biblical worldview, we put God back on the throne where he's always been. We place him, we allow him to stay on the throne of, not on the throne of, but on the throne of our hearts. And so we see these areas are challenging and clashing with the church and we're clashing with the culture. So what do we do? Well, I come to give you a word of encouragement, but at the same time, I want to put something on your heart so that we can take not only a look outwardly, but look inwardly as well. In the midst of all this stuff, and there is more, but time won't allow me to be able to give you more. In the midst of all, it seems as if this is a defeated world. The church cannot win and Satan is winning himself. That's what it seems like. But according to the word of God, he shows me a different picture. We can live victoriously in this defeated world. Anybody believe that this morning? In seven hundred. A.D., 700 B.C., Judah was facing an attack by the Assyrian army. See, you need to understand it was during Isaiah's time, but it was Hezekiah uh, was the king at the time. And, it, and, and this attack was imminent. But you need to understand about Israel and Judah is that God sent this prophet Isaiah to warn them about the sins that they were involved in. At the time, Israel started looking like these foreign nations, worshiping the same God, living the same way, denouncing marriages. Israel started embracing all of these things that God warned them not to embrace. And say sometimes God will use our, your, his, the enemies to prick us back to coming back to him. So uh, uh, the Assyrians was one of the armies that was about to invade Judah. Now, it's interesting that Judah was the nation of praise. And so somehow, because even the name Judah means worship of one God, they denounced the very thing that they were doing. And that's the worship of the one true God. And because of it, now they're, they're facing impending danger of a hostile army. In Isaiah chapter 33 verse 5 and 6 in the New King James version, it says this, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and strength of salvation in the fear of the Lord, his treasure. Israel was faced, Judah was faced with two choices, with this incoming danger. One, flat out just give up. Raise the towel and just give up. Or second, turn to another help. They were looking to form an alliance and ask Egypt for help. When I look at today's church, it makes me wonder because I'm seeing... Wondering if the church collectively is now raising the white flag and surrendering or looking to some other source for help. But thank God for a prophet, a man of God. God has always had a people who will stand firm and say, God is God and nothing will change that. So God tells the prophet to tell the king and tell the people, do neither. Raise the white flag and don't look for another help. And he says here in the scripture, I want you to put that scripture back up again. It says, and the Lord shall exalt, shall be, is exalted for he dwells on high. He's reminding them for he has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. And here is the key in verse six, wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of Your times in an unstable, unstable world, wisdom and knowledge is going to be the thing that anchors us when we find ourselves taking loops, turning, twisting. Life is bringing uh, physical challenges, emotional challenges, physical challenges, challenges in our family. God says it is wisdom and knowledge, not just wisdom and knowledge according to the culture but wisdom and knowledge according to God's word that will stable us in the midst of our turbulent times. And he said, wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times. But those of us who have chosen to put the Bible on the back seat, good luck. Good luck on your journey. But those of us who are sitting here may have thought about raising the white flag, put that flag in the back seat of your car. It's not over with yet. God will always have the last say so. Today, I want to take a look at a group of people. They're not here today, but I believe that these group of people will speak volumes to us, the 21st century church today. And who's that group of people? I'm going to look at the first century church. I believe there is something we know that they knew, but they weren't willing to allow what they knew to slip through their hands. They weren't willing to put it on the side. They were willing to embrace what we know all the way to the bitter end. So we want to take a look at what can the first century church tell us about living victoriously in a defeated world. So what made the first century church so effective considering everything that they were facing? What made them so effective? Well, let's take a look at Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 through 14. Let's take a look at what they were facing and see where we are. Here's what they say. We are pressed on every side. By troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus Christ so that the life of Jesus may be also seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under the constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death. But this has resulted in eternal life for you. But we continue to preach. I love that. I love that. In light of everything you just heard, facing them because of Jesus, they step to the, to the forefront and says, "Don't feel sorry for us, because we want you to understand. None of that stuff moves us. So, in face of all that, we will continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, declaring what God has said. So they said they told the world, "Bring us, bring it to us, hit us with your best shot. Christians don't die; we multiply." But we continue to preach. Why? Because we have the same kind of faith that the psalmist had when he said, I believe in God, so I spoke. And we know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with him and, pre- and present us to himself together with you. What an incredible picture of living victoriously when it seemed like everything around them was defeating them. What can they say to us? When I look at this and read this, I'm like, man, we are nowhere near dealing with some of the areas that they're dealing with. And yet, at the same time, they held firm. How do we know they held firm? There is a scripture found in Acts chapter 17, verse 4 through 6. Paul was the, the leader and the bishop who established many churches. And when God got a hold of that man's life on the road to Damascus, I mean, it completely turned his life upside down. And he brought a certain level of understanding and knowledge of Jesus Christ to the Gentile world and to Jewish, Jewish believers who would believe in his message. And he lived it so profoundly that it influenced the life of the first century church. And they began to live out the very message that Paul taught them. But I want you to see the effect... What the people in the culture was saying about those who were not going to raise the, the, wave the, the, the white flag nor look for hope and help somewhere else. Look at this. It says this in Acts chapter 17, verse 4 through 6. It says this. This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and uh, devout Greeks and not, but the Jews who were not persuaded becoming envious took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob. The purpose was to start a riot and set all of the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, where Paul was preaching the gospel. They may not have this scripture. So let me just read it. Let me read it and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they could not find Paul, they went to Jason's house and dragged him out to the streets and said this. Rulers of the city, these are the men who turned the world upside down and have come here too to do the same thing. Do you hear what they said? These people are troublemakers. They preach this Jesus Christ, Him crucified, Him rose from the dead, and the message, they preach it with such conviction and such passion that they are influenced and turning the world upside down. I wonder if that's the testimony of the non-believers today about the church. They turn the world upside down. Wow. So... What can we learn from these people who turned the world upside down? What can we learn about these people who were not willing to allow this precious gospel and the word of God to slip through their fingers because they're under cultural pressure? They're under political pressure. They were not interested in milling with the culture and conforming to the the. the, the 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 age of tolerance to be politically correct because oftentimes being politically correct will make you biblically incorrect. We have a mission. So what can we learn from those believers so that the testimony of non-believers will say about us, they turned the world upside down. Number one, they had a heavenly perspective. Somebody say heavenly perspective. Wow. They had a heavenly perspective. No, they weren't so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good because part of Paul's understanding of the gospel is that we are both salt and light. Where? In the earth. We're in the world, but not of the world. You see, when I go fishing, I, you know, I love the guys when they put the boat in the water, but it's not so good when the water get in the boat. So we're in the world, but not of it. We're living in the world, but the world should never be in us. So they had a heavenly perspective. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. Watch this. Watch this. It says, do not love this world, nor the things it offers. Now, the word world here is the word cosmos, not people, because it seemed like a contradiction. Well, wait, wait didn't God say that we should love the world, that God loved the world? Well, why would it? No, he says in John three sixteen, the word world here is people, but in this one it is the cosmos. The word when he says, Don't love the world, it is its systems, it is how it functions. Don't love how it thinks or how it acts. He said, do not be engaged in that. He said, do not love the world and its system, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, a pride in our own achievements and our possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. And I want to read that same scripture in the Message Bible. let do you put that up? Here's what it says. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love, love of the world squeezes out the love of the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world is, number one, warning your own way. Wanting everything for yourself and wanting to appear important has something to do, has nothing to do with the Father. Warning your own way has nothing to do with the Father. Wanting everything for yourself is not reflective of the Father. Wanting to seem important when you really not is not from God. Has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates us from Him. What did the first church understand? They understood that in this life, it was about living and living only for God. They were content if they had or did not have. They understood that this life and everything that it does has the ability to trap us and pull us away from God. They understood that. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on its way out. But whoever does, What God wants is set for eternity. What did the first church understand? They understood that they, while they were being pressed and chased down and haunted, and yet some of them starved and didn't have, they kept their eyes on a heavenly perspective knowing that all of this stuff is going to fade away. And too often I see the 21st century church is inundated with receiving and giving and uh, uh, not offending people. You understand that you can stand in front of rouses and have 100, $100 bills and give a $100 bill to 100 people. Before that year is out, somebody in that group going to have something negative or bad to say about you. And you're not going to please everybody. And they're going to talk. So if they're going to talk, let's give them something to talk about. Let's say that these people are troublemakers because they preach that Jesus and they turn the world upside down because they're causing some problems. They don't fit with the culture. They don't want to get with the culture. They are upset whenever we change God's standard and they don't, they won't abdicate the truth because it's not a truth for us to change. Hmm. Wow. Paul now comes to the forefront, this leader. Uh, this spiritual leader of the church in the first century, we see Paul talks about his Christ-like life in Philippians chapter one, verse twenty and twenty-two. Look what Paul says. Paul says, it, "For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed." Do you think for one moment Paul of the first-century church was concerned about whether or not they politically lived and lived their lives politically correct? I don't think so. And Paul was cool with himself. Matter of fact, Paul was the type of guy that if you beat him and put him in prison, he went, yes, I have a captive audience now. (laughs) What What amazed the people, the sinners, those who didn't understand this first century church, they couldn't understand how do you guys maintain this truth and walk this out in the face of the fact that you're watching your brothers being ripped to pieces by lions. You're watching them being turned upside down, being burned upside, burned alive, being sawed in half, being hunted down like animals. How do you guys still maintain your conviction and your persuasion that Whatever work God has began in me is going to complete that. The reason why they were able to stand in the midst of all that was because they had a heavenly perspective. They said, this world is not my own. There is another one that's coming and God is going to bring an end to all this suffering, all this evil. And so he's going to set it all right. So here's the thing. If we're going to sustain ourselves in the midst of turbulent times and live victoriously, we've got to get our eyes on something other than what we see. Wow, he said, that is why he says this. I fully expect and hope I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for who Christ as I have been in the past. I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ. Here is a secret. He says, I want to make sure that everything I say, that everything I do when I talk to sinners, when I talk to Christians, when they see me in the marketplace, that they will not make accusations against my character because I represent God. And I want my God to understand that my life is to bring glory to God and everything I do, Amen. Amen. how I treat people, how I speak to people. He says, I want my life to bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. He says this, for to me, living means living for Christ. And dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So really, I don't know which is better, living or dying. Paul said it's a win-win situation. If you let me live, I'm going to give you some Jesus. If you let me die, I get to see Jesus. So do what you have to, but you're not going to change me. And we have got to have that same conversation and God's Word that we got to keep our eyes on what's eternal and not what is fading. Nations rise and nations fall. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Princes and presidents rise to authority, but they fall. But the Word of our God stands forever, and we cannot put our trust in things that don't last for eternity. I'm encouraging the body of Christ this morning. We've got to be dead steadfast in what God has given us as a directive. So how should we see this life and all of its trouble? How should we in the 21st century see all of this, this rollercoaster ride when I'm on it and I'm up, one minute I'm upside down and they jerking me to the left and I'm going to the right and it's stopping all of a sudden I see this huge plunge and one season of my life everything's going well. And the next season, physical issues, man, one after the other. Then the other season, as soon as I get through it, man, my kids done lost their mind. They're doing some crazy stuff. Man, financially I'm going through this. This is crazy. But you know what? God, I'm going to trust you because you never change and you're always faithful. God is always faithful. And watch this. This is even if they threaten my life, Paul said to kill me. I'm not asking you, please, pretty, please, don't kill me because you're doing me a favor. You know why? Paul and the first century church was not willing to hang on to this life. Because what is there to hang on here when the word of God tells us that all this is passing? Why do we get so perturbed over all this stuff? Can't sleep at night taking pills to get up, pills to lay down, pills to live. We're pilling ourselves and we can't even, I mean, taking pills. Chill. I got a pill for you. It's called the word of God. Take a good dose of that and you're going to be fine. So how should we live and how should we see this life and all of its trappings and, and all of its defeat? I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> you were saying it to yourself. That's just the Holy Spirit just revealed it. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. It says, this is, how, this is what we do. This is why we never give up. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, don't give up. Turn to your other neighbor and say, neighbor, don't give up. So you just like, well, why shouldn't we give up? Why not just raise the right flag? Here's why. This is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. <laughs> <Way to God. laughs> Woo, there were times since the, first, since the first lady, I used to roll out of bed, jump on, hit the floor. I'm like, hit the floor running. Now that I turn 55, I turn over and get out my, boy, I, I sound like a bowl of rice crispy, Snap, crackle, pop. <laughs> I'm like, what in the world is going on? And every now and then I try to convince myself I can get out there and play basketball and for about a short time I look good, but after a while my body's screaming, have you lost your mind? What are you doing? But I'm encouraged, church, because even though this outward man of mine is fading and got to wear glasses and can't move as fast and every time I turn, I hear a snap, a pop or a crackle. I know every day I live is drawing me closer to the return of Jesus Christ and God. I can't wait to see the one who died for us. This is the hope that we have to know that Jesus shall and will return. We can't lose hope of that. We can't lose sight of that. If the church have no hope, what hope does the world have? If the church is in chaos and look like some of those people in the picture, when they see us panic, they're going to panic. They say, well, I thought y'all had the answer. Yeah, but (laughs) oh! Now, you're not denying that we have trouble. We can see that. And the first century church was not denying they were being haunted down. They were being destroyed, thrown to the lions, burned alive. That was their reality. But they chose another reality. That God who began a faithful work in them is going to exceed all the way through. That's the reality that prevailed over the one they were facing. This is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles, somebody say present troubles. Watch this. This is what we know. This is what we hang on to. This is what we cannot let slip through our fingers. For our present troubles are small and won't last long. Our present trouble is small and they won't last long. How can you say that? When I put my present troubles in light of the eternal weight of glory, there is no comparison to the present trouble because what I know about God and what's coming outweighs the present trouble. I thought we was about to have revival right there. That's good. That's some good stuff, man. Woo. That's what some of the old Pentecostal preachers used to do. For those of you that weren't raised Pentecostal, that's the way of kicking the devil and saying, Watch this. For our present trouble, somebody say present trouble, are small and won't last long. Wow. And they say, yet they produce, watch this, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. He says, that trouble that you see is perfecting you. It's causing you to look somewhere else to give you hope, to give you strength, and to give you victory. And it's creating this, this confidence that God is still in control and nothing can pass him. So let it roll. Let it roll. Wow, watch this. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, here's what we do. What do we do? Say it again. What do we do? Say it again. What do we do? I want you to put it in the first person. I will fix my gaze on things that I cannot see. Say it. Now, you just said it, so you're going to have to live by your word. (laughs) You see, what I magnify, I make big. The psalmist says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So when we come to a place like this, I'm not here to magnify the culture. I'm not here to magnify what went wrong, depending on your interpretation of what wrong is. We are here to do one single thing, and that is to magnify the Lord. Make God big, bigger than our circumstances, bigger than our troubles, bigger than anything that that, that perplexes us. We're here to magnify God. Wow. So I fix my gaze on the things I cannot see. The word fix here means to lock, load, and not be persuaded or challenged to turn to the left or to the right. Distractions. Distractions. By the way, thank you, Holy Spirit. Is it possible that the things that's trying to... that's vying for your attention... It's nothing but a distraction by the enemy to cause you to forget that you are victorious in Christ. Selah. Pause and think about it. Because wherever you give your emotions to, that's where your heart will be. That's where your thinking will be on. And that's what's going to control what you say and affect how you live. For the things we see will soon be done and gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever, forever. Wow. I love the message Bible. Let me quickly say that, what it says here. So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside, it often looks like things are falling apart on us. Oh, come on now. On the inside, we, where God is making a new life, not a day goes by without His unfolding grace. This hard times and small potatoes. The, these hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times. The lavish celebration prepared for you and I. There's far more here than meets the eye. And we're not talking about transformers. We're talking about those who have been transformed. The things we see now are here today and gone tomorrow, but the things we can't see now will last forever. I got a key point for you. What did they learn? They were determined to keep themselves separate from the world. They're speaking to you and I. If we're going to walk in victory, here's what they're saying to us. Keep yourself from the world. Don't get entangled in the affairs of this life. Let me ask you this question. If you were laying on a a bed and you were sick and the candle of your life was getting ready to blow out, would it even matter whether or not your bills are being paid? Not saying that you shouldn't, but when you're getting ready to die, does it matter? Would it matter what the economy is like? Would it matter whether or not Chung Yoon Young, whatever his name is in North Korea gonna drop a bomb? No, you know why? You know why? Because you have your eyes fixed on eternity because that's where you're going. Well, guess what? You need to live your life like you're leaving. I love the song. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. Rising, He justified me and freed me forever. One day, He's coming back. One glorious day. When you feel discouraged, you need to say, living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away, rising he justified me and freed me forever. One day he's coming back, some glorious day. Wow. They were determined to keep themselves separate from the world. So not only did they have a heavenly perspective, but what else made them victorious in the midst of the situation they were in? they had a love that was that persevered they had a love that persevered in acts chapter 2 verse 46 and 47 it says this they worshiped together in the temple each day met in homes for the lords for the lords supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity all a while all the while praising god and enjoying the goodwill of all the people one version says and they had favor with everybody because the world had never seen this type of love before And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. They had an incredible love that would not change because of the things that they were experiencing. 1 John 4 and 7, 7 through 12 tells us this about this love, this incredible love. He said, dear friends, let us continue to love one another. Now, he didn't say let us love one another if everybody agrees with each other. He didn't say let us love each other if everything we want, we get. When did it ever become acceptable when we disagree and disagreeing means that I hate you? We've always had dissent. Disagreement means we need to come to a compromise. But today, to disagree, man, you better run for your life. Depending on what you're disagreeing with. But but we have a different objective. He says, dear friends, let us continue to love one another. For love comes from who? And anyone who loves is a what? And what? But anyone who dares, who does not love, does not know God. For God is what? God showed how much he loved us by sending his only, one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other that same way. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and His love is brought to full expression in us. That's what the early church understood. They even when a a, 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 a plague broke out in Rome, when people was pushing and throwing their relatives out of the house because they were afraid they would get sick, the church during that time took those people in and began to nurse them, even at the risk of beginning of getting sick themselves. And by that, that that consequence, it showed the love of Jesus Christ to the world. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 35 and 40. What is the greatest commandment? They're asking, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said unto them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your, with all your, and with all your. This is the first commandment. And the second is likened unto it. You shall love your neighbor as your. On these commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Wow. There was a man in the first century church named Justin Martyr who was in a first century apologist who explained and articulated the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he said about the first century church love. This is what they said. We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have in a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of other race or other countries, but now somebody said, "But now, but now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. Wow, we used to be like the world, but since Christ has come in we don 't hate anybody. We love and pray even for our enemies they Demonstrated an incredible love. And then finally, the third thing they speak to us and how they were able to live victoriously in a very difficult world that they speak to us, they demonstrated a profound trust in Jesus Christ as the sovereign Lord. Let me ask you a question, church. How many of you guys in here believe that God is sovereign? Please raise your hand. Look around. That's 100% of us. Let me tell you what that means. If you truly mean that God believe that God is sovereign that means he rules over the affairs of men and nothing gets past him and he whatever he allows to happen allowed to happen if we truly believe that that even though things don't go our way and we don't understand certain things about this life we're going to put our trust in God because everything is working out by his sovereign hand Do you hear me? See, I, I, I watch babies, and when a baby is perplexed and in trouble, everything becomes well and fine when they can crawl up in mama's arms or daddy's arms or mama or papa's arms. And when the baby feels that, that subtle embrace, they close their eyes and they look up at papa or mama. I know, Sister Vicky, you want to go grab them babies? No, now. I see your eyes. She's like, hurry up so I can get to Texas. Or they look up at mom and they look up at daddy. And then when they look up and they see that assurance and they feel that warm embrace, and then they do this. This is what God wants the church, to position to be in. Although trouble may be all around you, I want you to understand God has never left you and never forsake us. And every time we feel trouble. You need to open up the Word of God and it will picture, give you a picture, a portrait of the loving God and let the words of the, the Word of God embrace you so that you can lay down at night and say, God, I thank you that today was not a good day, but it was a good day with you. And I'm going to rest in you because tomorrow I get a chance to do this all over again in you. Wow, that's incredible. They demonstrate a profound trust in Jesus as sovereign Lord. In Philippians chapter 1 Verse 40, verse six, it says, being confident of this very thing that he who has began a good work in you will complete this until the day of Christ's return. And that's what they understood. In Romans chapter eight, verse 31, it says, what shall we say about such things as these? If God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give everything else? Give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is seated in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us and advocating for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it, mean, does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Absolutely not. Or persecution or hunger or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. But we're being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us it is and he says i am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of god neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor fear for today nor our worries for about tomorrow not even powers of hell can separate us from god's love no power in the sky above or the earth beneath Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the question that the church and the church are asking us, what is separating us from God? We need to answer them back. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Let the government do what it does. Let society change what it wants to change. But we're going to put our trust in a God who loves us and the Savior, Jesus, who died for us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Colossians 13 says, For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son, who purchased our re- freedom and forgiveness of our sins. Christ is the invisible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything, was created, and is supreme ruler over all of creation. For, though, for through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can, we can see and the things that we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and for Him. He existed before anything else. And he holds all creation in his hand. So what made them successful is that they, they had a right perspective and they trusted in a God who was sovereign. Here is what they said as I get ready to close. He says, they just trusted that God's way was the best way. They trusted that God's way was the best way. As you bow your heads... <laughs> for those of you who are sitting here and have made the Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, I want to encourage you today. You have his peace. I want to encourage you today that you do not lose hope, that you don't give up, that you don't look like the culture, that we must echo what Christ is saying, knowing that we are already victorious. And the one thing that God has promised his children is peace. But for those of you today, He said, Brother Freddie, I I just don't have that peace. I've never made the Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. And I want that peace. You need to understand that peace is only given to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Because without God, without Christ, you have no hope. So today, if that's you, and you said, I want to know Jesus Christ as the Lord of my Savior, the Lord of my life. And I want that peace. And if you've never made that declaration and you want to make that declaration today, I'm going to ask you to just slip up your hands. You want to accept Jesus as your Lord. Because to us who have made that choice, we're promised eternal life. But those who have not, eternal life is not promised to you. So today all over this building, as the church prays, just slip up your hand if you want to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ today. Very quickly, if you've never given him your life, you want to make him Lord. While they singing softly, <laughs> is there one? Is there one? If you want to give your heart to Christ, I would like to meet you down front. won't you come and you said, I, "Today I make a decision. I make a choice. My life has been incredible. It has been it's been insane." But today I want to make God, who's the sovereign Lord, the head of my life. If that's you, I want you to quickly come down the front. I'm not going to hold you any longer. Either you will make that choice. God is calling you. I want you to come very quickly. Today you make that choice. Today you make that choice. Is there anyone? Is there anyone? I want to everyone to stand, please. Is there one? Is there another? Is there another? Is there another? When we turn our eyes toward Jesus and look to the heavens, all of this trouble fades. Is there another? Very quickly. I want you to pray with me. I want you to extend your hands this way. I want you to pray this prayer after me you made an incredible choice in the decision to love the Lord your God and invite him as the Lord of your life. I want you to pray this prayer. Lord Lord Jesus, today, I choose you as my Lord and Savior. Today, I renounce my old ways. I confess with my mouth that you are the Son of God and that God raised Jesus from the dead. And I believe with my heart that he's the son of God. Lord, come into my heart. Make me new. I receive your son into my life. Father, I thank you that today I am born again, saved by the precious blood of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you. Father, what an incredible choice that she had made. I pray now, Lord God, the angels in heaven are rejoicing because one soul has come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and they're rejoicing today. And Father, I thank you now that their life will be covered by the blood of Jesus and she will never be the same again. Her name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and there's no more condemnation than those who who live in Christ Jesus. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless.